0: You're listening to It's Good To Be A Man, the podcast where we are extending God's house and father rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, workmanship, and wisdom. Today, a special episode for our Patreon supporters. I'm going to be looking at a topic I talked about recently in an article. I'd like to share some further thoughts on that, expand a little on what I wrote. And this is the idea that you can't image God if you don't fear him. That's up next. (laughs) Here's my thesis. God has built the physical world to represent the spiritual world. It images it. It's a model of it. The spiritual world, in many respects, is in fact primary, and the physical world is like a shadow of it, even though we tend to think the other way around, because to us, the physical world is far more real than anything spiritual. We don't really have any immediate experience of spiritual realities most of the time. We see this play out in the gospel of John repeatedly at the well. Jesus offers the woman water and he isn't talking about something you drink. He's talking about spirit when he tells the disciples that he has food to eat. They think that he's talking about stuff that you put in your mouth, but he's not. He's talking about the work of God when he tells people that he, they need to eat his flesh and his blood they take him to be a cannibal, and he is not a cannibal. He's talking about spiritual realities again. It happens over and over in the Gospel of John. This is just the way Jesus sees the world, and it's the way God sees the world because he made the world, and Jesus is God. So when we look at the way that young men interact with older men, we need to understand that what's happening here is also an image of spiritual realities. We are made to image God, to represent him. And as we get older, we image God in different ways. We carry his rule into the world, and young men represent God's strength and vitality, but older men are supposed to represent God's wisdom and authority. And that's not always the case, of course. The, the fool has made sure of that. But the fact remains that even when a man is wicked, an older man is wicked, the way that you treat him reflects how you treat God in your heart. Now, Proverbs... Is written to a young man and it begins with a statement of its purpose which is that this young man should gain wisdom and at the end of that statement of purpose it has this warning the fear of yahweh is the beginning of knowledge fools despise wisdom and instruction it's verse seven what should we infer from this the bible often tailors its warnings to our sinful tendencies That is to say that when it warns us of things, it picks things to warn us about that we're actually in danger of. So it doesn't tend to warn men against nagging because men aren't usually naggers. It doesn't tend to warn women against being doormats because women don't naturally want to be doormats. Rather, it warns husbands against their tendency to despise and neglect their wives, and it warns wives against disrespecting and controlling their husbands. These are the things that we're inclined to, the sinful tendencies that we have as a result of the curse. It's therefore fairly safe to conclude from Proverbs 1, seven that young men tend to have trouble fearing God. If they didn't, the Bible wouldn't warn them to fear God. They're cocky, they're arrogant, And this false bravado is a sin they must overcome to be truly wise. And sadly, many young men never do, and they become cocky and arrogant old men. Now, we know this firsthand, as well as from observation. I myself know the the inner punk within me, the cockiness and the arrogance and the foolish pride that lies in my heart that bubbles up continually. But the problem with this is that Takes wisdom to see and know wisdom. So we're in a bit of a Dunning Kruger situation. The very skill that we need to have is the skill that we need to have to recognize the skill that we need to have. So how can we tell if we have this fear of God? How can we be sure that we're growing in wisdom, that we're becoming more fearful and more humble, rather than just becoming more solidified in our sinful ways? Proverbs mentions the fear of the Lord 14 times. And in doing this, it triangulates in on a set of attributes and behaviors that we can look for in ourselves and others. So rather than trying to discern our hearts and whether they're on the right track, we can look at objective measures. We can say, these are the KPIs, the key performance indicators. This is how we need to assess ourselves. Am I behaving in this way or in this way? Do I have these attributes or those attributes? I think we can summarize these attributes and behaviors down to four key ideas or key areas. The first is that a man who fears the Lord gives and receives instruction and rebuke, not necessarily because he likes it. In fact, especially when it comes to giving rebuke, he doesn't do it because he enjoys confrontation or because he likes to feel superior to others, but he does it because he enjoys receiving rebuke, and he doesn't enjoy receiving rebuke because he has some kind of inferiority complex, but he knows it makes him more like his father. By contrast, a man who does not fear God hates rebuke. He scoffs at anything that requires him to admit error or change his ways. I'm sure you've met people like this. Vox Day talks about gamma males and how these are men. I don't necessarily agree with his taxonomy or think that it's the most helpful thing in the world, but it can be useful for assessing ourselves and to, especially for assessing other people and understanding how they're likely to react in a broad sense. But these are men who... Whatever they've done, no matter how dumb, no matter how obviously wrong, they will get their backs up and they will insist that they are right, and they will refuse to accept correction, to the point not only of embarrassing themselves, but of embarrassing everyone around them, that the sorts of men who, if they got in a fight with someone and got knocked down repeatedly, they would claim that the problem was that, you know, their belt wasn't tight enough that time, and their shoelaces were untied at the other time, never has anything to do with their own inability. It's always some outside factor which is causing them to fail. And this is essentially what you see in children. It's an irrational confidence in their own ability and their own superiority, which should get trained out of them by their fathers, but often these kinds of men don't have good fathers. I've seen this in my own child. I have several children, but my my seven-year-old son is especially bad with this, and I think it affects boys far worse than it affects girls, just in my observation. Just the other day... He had to clean the toilet and did a shoddy job. So I came and made him do it again and watched as he did it. And after he'd done it, I said, you know, you've forgotten the last thing you have to do. And he said, what's that? And I said, you have to wash your hands. And he said, I never wash my hands as if never having done the thing he was supposed to do was a justification for not doing it. And then I said, well, you need to wash your hands. And he said, why? And I said, well, you've just been cleaning poop. You know, you're going to use those hands to eat with. Would you eat poop? And he said, well, you know, poop's basically food, isn't it? And I said, come on, for real? Poop's basically food? He's like, yeah, it's basically food. (laughs) Would you eat poop? No. So is it basically food? It's basically food. This is the kind of attitude that we see with a lot of young men, especially, unfortunately, in the manosphere. It seems to attract these sorts of men who have pride problems, correctability problems. You can most likely sympathise with what I'm getting at here. We've all met people who will defend eating poop on the basis that it's basically food. The second set of attributes or behaviours that we can look for in ourselves and in others to assess how well we're fearing the Lord is that a man who fears the Lord hates evil, and especially pride and arrogance and perverted speech these things grieve him. He tries to mortify them. He tries to put them to death in himself and to flee from them in others. He, he doesn't admire them. He doesn't revel in them. He doesn't like vile speech and he doesn't like slander. But by contrast, a man who does not fear God is himself evil, which means that he's boastful, he's disrespectful, he's hasty to judge others and eager to involve himself in speaking ill of him. Now, I've had some pushback on this point. People say, you know, there's a time for everything, as Ecclesiastes says, and boastfulness is something commended in Scripture, is it not? I mean, doesn't Jeremiah say that... Let the rich not boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boasts of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises chesed, loving kindness, justice and righteousness on earth? Yes, it does say that. But when we boast that we know God, what are we really boasting in? If we turn to Philippians 2, I think it becomes quite obvious what's going on. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We don't boast in our knowledge of God because we know God, like we did it ourselves. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in the anointed Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. They're not our works, they're God's works, we're just walking in them. Psalm 34, two to three says, my soul makes its boast in Yahweh. Let the humble hear and be glad. So this is how we are to boast. We're boasting in the Lord and what he has done. What does that mean? Well, it means to glorify him. Look, verse three: three, oh, magnify Yahweh with me and let us exalt his name together. To boast in the Lord is the very opposite of the kind of boasting that a man who does not fear the Lord engages in. A man who does not fear the Lord boasts in himself. He's prideful. He's arrogant. A man who does fear the Lord is humble. When he boasts, he's glorifying God because he knows that God is the only thing worth glorifying and that he himself, well, his righteous deeds are as filthy menstrual rags. Which brings us to the third set of attributes. A man who fears the Lord is content to be made low because he has an inkling of how he compares to God. He sees himself in comparison To the high divinity of God, he seeks his true place before him. And so naturally, when he sees his true place before him, he raises up God's greatness rather than his own, because he has no greatness. By contrast, a man who does not fear God seeks to establish superiority over everyone, because he thinks he is the greatest. He even tries to establish his superiority over God himself. And fourthly, a man who fears the Lord trusts the Lord. Because his refuge is God, he is firm even in crisis or poverty, not because of strength that he has, but because he's trusting in the strength of God. His children can take refuge in him. He's a true patriarch because he's a son of the true patriarch. But a man who does not fear God is fearful of what people will do even when circumstances seem very favourable. He frets for the future because he knows inwardly his own weakness and his inability to control others and control the events of the world. He, he has no trust in a sovereign God who is ordaining and providentially arranging the world. He doesn't believe that all things work together for the good of those who love him, or if he does believe it, he doesn't care because he doesn't love God. The central theme of Proverbs is Solomon teaching his son the trade of wise rulership, which is really a proxy for God teaching us how to be his sons by truly representing him. A son is one who reveals and represents his father. He takes on his father's work, as Jesus taught us. In John 519 to 20 Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the father doing. And this is what Proverbs is all about. It's about seeing what his father is doing so that he can do it also. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these that you will marvel. Deuteronomy 1012 12-13 helps us to understand how the fear of God ties into this calling of sonship. Describing what God requires of us, which is to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statues of Yahweh which I am commanding you today for your good. So to fear God is to love him and to walk in his ways. It is to accurately represent him and rule for him. It is to be a true son, as Adam was created to be and as Jesus was. But sin twists the desire to rule in God's name, into a craving to rule in our own name. And it starts young. This is why Solomon warns his son to fear God. A young man must first choose to fear God before he can ever hope to be a good patriarch. He must turn from his own wisdom and strength to find true wisdom and strength in God. He's naturally alienated from God, and so he doesn't naturally reflect God's wisdom and strength. He needs to turn to God so as to gain those things He must put to death self-rule in order to truly rule. And sin is slippery. we justify these tendencies in ourselves, and we want to think the best of others. you know they, they can't be that bad they, they They say they want these things. I, I should believe them. We second guess, we err on the side of charity, and that's not a bad tendency, but the Bible says, "Examine the fruit." And there are clear, simple fruits that you can test to know which direction someone is moving in their fear of the Lord. There are two that I think are particularly important. The first is what your speech says about your attitude to God. And a terribly common way that we betray our lack of fear for God is in simple colloquialisms that we've picked up from the culture. We say things like, holy cow, holy crap, if something's you know exciting or surprising. And this is just an instinctive response that everyone does including everyone in the church you know people in the church know not to say oh my god or if they hear someone on, in a movie this is particularly common that um certain people in real life will say it as well a lot jesus christ you know or jesus h christ like that, how it makes it more impressive we know not to say that we know that's blasphemy and yet we say holy crap like it's nothing it's so instinctive we don't even think about it but what do the seraphs continually sing before the heavenly throne Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. Isaiah six three. His holiness is, in effect, the devastating divinity of God. Isaiah is undone by this fearsome otherness. When he falls before the throne, we tend to translate it as, Woe to me, I am undone. In the Hebrew, it's much more sound like, Ai! It's a, a squeal of terror. In Exodus 27, God instructs us, not to take up his name for a worthless cause. The NET in its translation notes observes that the command prohibits use of the name for any idle, frivolous, or insincere purpose. The name is to be treated with reverence and respect because it is the name of the Holy God. But what do we say about the thrice holy God when we take this one attribute, his holiness, that defines him above all else? And we use it as an adjective to describe excrement in a banal expression of mild surprise. Can there be any more vain, frivolous, or insincere purpose? Now Jesus says that we will give an account for every worthless or idle word that we utter. And no doubt there will be many, many of these for each of us. But we need to determine that they will not include the irreverencing and disrespecting of God's very nature a man who refuses to do this, refuses to take up terms like holy as if they were profane, is a man who shows that he's reflected upon the nature of God, and that he has come to a considered and settled fear of him. The second fruit is very simple, and it goes back to my original point, so this is where we'll close. All fatherhood is from God, Ephesians 3.15 says that all patria derives from him. Patria's word, I'm sure you can recognize as having its origin in pater, father. Um, it can be translated father or family. So, how a young man treats older men is a basic acid test of how he treats God himself. An older man is a representative of God to a younger man. This doesn't mean that he is an authority over the younger man automatically. It just means that the physical world images the spiritual, and the way that God has set up hierarchies in society is such that the way that we respond to older men has a reflection on our own hearts and how we think about wisdom and authority and our relation to it. Leviticus 19.32 makes the connection explicit. You shall stand up before the grey head and honour the face of an old man and fear your God. So standing before a grey head, honouring the face of an old man, is directly linked to fearing God. So if you're assessing a man, if you're assessing yourself, the question is very simple. Are you flattening out age status so that you're treating your elders as your equals? Are you acting like they're your buddies or your bros? This is something... Very common online, because the internet, by definition, flattens out discourse. There is no clear indication of who's older, who's younger. You might meet someone online and think that what they say is stupid, and respond as if they were your age, and discover that they're a pastor who's 85 years old. And then you feel like, oh man, I probably should have be been more respectful even though I disagreed with the guy. Sometimes, you might act like a straight-up punk. I've met a good share of straight-up punks on the internet. People who treat not only their peers as inferiors, but seem to take a special delight in tearing down men who have been set up as pastors and elders. Men who, the Bible says, should be obeyed and submitted to. Hebrews thirteen seventeen: Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. You don't agree with the way that they're commanding you? Okay, notice how the verse goes on. They will have to give an account. They're not giving an account to you. They're giving an account to God. Now, I'm not saying you have to obey every elder, of course. That's insane. How could you possibly do that? If you tried to submit yourself to the elders of two opposing churches, you'd have to be under two opposing command structures. That doesn't make any sense. What I'm saying is, the Bible is clear about the seriousness, the reverence with which you ought to treat older men who have been ordained to this position. The church of God is not an institution to be mocked or belittled, even if it is very severely compromised. The Church of God can be almost entirely apostate, and yet it can still have elders and pastors who are legitimately ordained and under God's authority as leaders of other Christians. They need to be respected as such. Do not rebuke them, as Paul tells Timothy, rather exhort them as fathers. Are we presuming to mock or rebuke them? Let's not treat lightly the example of the young men who mocked Elisha, Being mauled to death by bears is not outside the realm of possibility for behaving in such a way. Let's show honor to our elders, because how a man acts towards an older man in real life is how he acts toward God in his heart. And that's all I have for now, so with these exhortations in mind, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. Non out.